Let's get after it. If you have a Bible, let's turn to Mark chapter 1. Mark 1 is where we will be this morning as we continue on in our sermon series over the Gospel of Mark. Second week of our sermon series. Hope you are all doing well this morning. It's good to see all of you. Uh, Mark chapter 1, we'll pick up in verse 9. Mark 1 verse 9. I believe it's page 836 on the black hardbacks underneath the seats around you. Uh, This morning, the passage we're looking at, verse 9 through 11, is an incredibly important passage, even though it's incredibly short. Just three verses, but packed full of meaning and packed full of implications for who God is, who Jesus is, what he's doing in the world. Um, what he's continuing to do in the world, who we are as Christians. And so um, we're going to read it and unpack it this morning, and then we're going to unpack it next week as well. And so one of the things we're going to be experimenting with through the series of Mark as we go through the Gospel of Mark is going a little bit slower than we normally do as we walk through books of the Bible, which might come as a shock to some of you because we go pretty slow as it is. Um, we've spent years in books before as we've studied them. Um, but a couple passages I listen to and admire uh, we'll preach through the same passage one or two or three times if they so feel called as they're going through the book. And so this will be one of these passages. We'll preach on this same passage next week um, because there's so much in it that's so important and, and you just spend forever unpacking it. And so at FCQ, we want to be real slow and real methodical and, and nothing too fancy. We just want to talk about the Bible and talk about the God that's revealed here in the Bible. Um, and so this will do a couple things for us. It'll help us be slow. It'll also uh, keep us, hopefully, from like hour and a half long sermons because I won't have to say everything I want to say on that one passage uh, in one weekend. So, Mark 1, 9 through 11, if you'll read with me this morning. The text goes like this. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Now, I'd like to suggest that this event, this moment in Jesus' life, his baptism at the hands of John in the Jordan River, is one of the defining moments in Jesus' life. It's one of those moments where he fully and clearly recognizes who he is and what he's been called to do um, as as a person, as a human being, and as God incarnate. Um, I think we all have defining moments in our lives, moments that kind of clarified and cemented who we were as a person, for good or for bad. Um, We all have those periods in our lives where um, we kind of got to the core of who our identity was, of who we were as people, what we were called to do in the world. I think what we're seeing here with Jesus' baptism is his defining moment. We're seeing the moment when his identity is as fully and most completely revealed to him as it will ever be. Um, All the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, record Jesus' baptism as kind of the launching event into Jesus' ministry. Uh, so up until now, he has not done anything too spectacular. I mean, he's just been a regular, a regular man. He's been a carpenter, most likely, in Nazareth growing up. He's probably around 30 years old at this point. He has not, though, been the Jesus that we're familiar with. The Jesus who preaches and teaches and heals and casts out demons and does all of those things, raises people from the dead. That's not this Jesus yet. This Jesus is just from a small town, Nazareth. This is like nowhere, Texas, okay? Um, some scholars think Nazareth had around 100 people in it in the first century. This is why Jesus will like, encounter ridicule when he tells people where he's from. Can anything good come from Nazareth, right? I mean, it's nowhere, um, USA. Jesus comes from Nazareth. He's baptized. And from here on out, the Gospels report, he goes forth in power. He starts his ministry. 
then we start to see the Jesus who is preaching, the Jesus who is healing, the Jesus who is casting out demons and performing all these miracles. Um, you have Jesus' identity revealed here in a powerful way. Now, this reminds me, this scene in Mark reminds me of a pivotal moment in one of the classic films of our time. And I use the word film very carefully. It's not a movie, it's a film, okay? It's art. Um, one of the greatest um, pieces of media ever to be um, stitched together for you and I for our enjoyment. I'm referring, of course, to The Lion King. Um, <laughs> last spring, I was able to actually go see The Lion King on Broadway, which was quite the experience um, with me and my closest 40 high schoolers. Um, Ryan was there with us. No, you weren't. You, you went on another trip. I forgot about that. But now I'm upset as well. Um, a group of uh, high schoolers, we took them to New York City. We got to see The Lion King on Broadway, uh, and it was a, a very interesting moment. It reminded me, it had been a long time since I had actually seen The Lion King. And so to get more familiar with the story, if you'll remember in the story, um, if you'll indulge me for a minute, you have a little boy lion, right? Simba. Ta-da! And Simba is born. His father is killed, the true king. And so Simba's kind of journey is finding his identity as the um, next king, as the one who should take over and should live into his identity as his father's son, as the king. And there's a moment in The Lion King um, where Simba is trying to remember he's out in the wilderness and he's trying to remember and reconnect with his father and rediscover who he is um, and he comes up to this pond and gets this moment of clarity so we've actually got the film the clip here and so we'll show it for you we need some sound <laughs> my son you are the one true king very reminiscent here of jesus baptism he goes into the water comes out of the water and hears this voice saying you are my son this is a defining moment for jesus just like it was a defining moment for simba from here on out he's trying to live into this identity that's been revealed to him not only is it important for you and i today to rightly understand who jesus is just as important as it was for him to understand who he is but as we'll see this morning, I think it also will, will play into how we see ourselves. I think Jesus' defining moment in his baptism can turn into our defining moment as well, where we find out who we really are as we're incorporated into and connected to 
um, and united with Christ. So a couple things I want to point out in the text this morning as we um, look at what happens here. He's trying to search Lion King up. Um, no problem. The first one is, you'll look and you'll see, um, when Jesus goes into the water and he comes out of the water, Mark says that the heavens are torn open. The heavens are torn open. This is a very unique word in ancient Greek. It's a very like violent, aggressively violent word. There's a difference between something being opened and then something being torn. Um, and so the heavens are not opened up, they're torn, they're ripped apart, they're aggressively, violently ripped apart. Something has changed in the world. Um, one scholar says what's open may be closed, but what's torn apart may not be easily returned to its former state. Um, with Jesus' baptism, the relationship between heaven and earth is permanently altered. Um, in a sense, God now is on the loose. The cage of heaven has been opened up. And here comes God incarnate in the form of Jesus. Heaven has been torn open. A couple implications. One, um, heaven's coming down to earth. God here is invading. He's interrupting. He's acting in creation. And then two, this is a divine revelation. Remember, heaven is not a like sphere or location out in space. You can't get on a rocket ship and eventually reach heaven. Um, when the heavens are open, this is not a door in the sky kind of slowly opening up, right? The heavens are God's dimension of space. Think of the heavens being opened as a curtain being taken back. And all of a sudden we get to see what God sees. We get to see the true reality behind our experience and behind our reality. So the heavens open up. We have a divine revelation. Um, this was prophesied in Isaiah 64, um, where the prophet prays that God would tear open the heavens. We're in the heavens and come down, O Lord. And here in the baptism, God opens, tears, rips apart the heavens and comes down in the form of Jesus. We get a proclamation. The proclamation has two parts to it. This voice that speaks, God the Father, this voice speaks to Jesus directly. He says, you are my beloved son and with you I am well pleased. Those two parts here. The first, you are my son, my beloved son. And then the second speaks of God's satisfaction with Christ, whom I'm well pleased of whom I am well pleased. This first part here, he says, you are my beloved son. This is an echo or an allusion to a very, very famous Jewish song about the king that God would send his people. So flip with me, if you would, to Psalm chapter 2. Psalm chapter 2. When God shows up and says to Jesus coming out of the water, you are my son, you are my beloved son, Anybody reading or hearing the Gospel of Mark would have immediately thought of Psalm chapter 2, this very famous Jewish song about the king who would come on God's part. So let's read Psalm 2 together and we'll see the illusion, we'll see the echo, uh, the reference. Let me guide you through Psalm 2 here. Psalm 2 is a royal song. It's a song about the Messiah, the king who God would send to accomplish his will on earth as it is in heaven. And Psalm 2 works a lot like a Quentin Tarantino film. Uh, with like fast cuts, okay? So you're going to have four quick scenes, four quick little pictures here with no transitions, and you've got to kind of fill in the space for yourself as you read along in uh, Psalm chapter 2. So Psalm 2, verse 1. Here's our first little scene. It's verse 1 through 3. The psalmist asks, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed or his Messiah, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. So here's the first scene. It's a, a look out onto the world. And what you've got happening in the world is conflict and chaos. You have kings and rulers setting themselves up against and over the Lord and his ruler, his king. 
And they're planning and plotting against him to have their own purposes and own accomplishments and own goals uh, accomplished. And so then we move scenes. We get another scene shift in verse 4 to the next little section of the psalm. He who sits in the heavens. So now we're looking at God in the heavens. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. God is here responding the way you might respond if a child tried to fight you. Right? If, if maybe a toddler came up and was like, I'm going to beat you up. And you go, that's really cute, right? Like, look how cute that is. They're, they think that they can, they can battle me. They can fight me here. This is sarcasm on the part of God, right? He's chuckling at the biggest and mightiest princes and kings and rulers attempt to divert his will, to go against his plans for creation. He's laughing. He holds them in derision. He's mocking them. Then his attitude shifts, though. He'll speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So God's ultimate response to the chaos and conflict happening in his world is to set up a king, to send a king. I will send my king. He will set up shop on, on Zion, on my holy hill. And then we get another scene shift. Now the king is talking about an experience that happened to him in verse 7. I will tell of the decree, this king is talking, the Lord said to me, you are my son. Does this sound familiar? In Mark chapter 1, this king in Psalm 2 is recounting what God has done. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you or inaugurated you or started your reign. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. And so in this third scene, the king says, God has told me I am his son and I will rule the entire world. I will accomplish his will on earth as it is in heaven. We go to the fourth scene, which is just the narrator again talking to the kings and rulers now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, rejoice with trembling, kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. Now, many people, many scholars think that Psalm 2 originally was read during an inauguration ceremony of a king. So when a new Jewish king came to power, they would read Psalm 2 as an act of telling everybody that God now stands behind this new king. He has been declared God's son. You see this idea of kingship and sonship closely intertwined in the Old Testament. In 2 Samuel 7, when God makes a promise to King David that one of his descendants will be the eternal ruler of the world, he says, God says to David in this promise, he will be a son to me. God tells the king in Psalm chapter 2, you are my son. As we flip back to Mark chapter 1, this is what's happening in Jesus' baptism. A voice is speaking. You are my beloved son. In a sense, Jesus' baptism is a public inauguration ceremony. The message loud and clear here is that Jesus is God's king. Jesus is the one God has sent and appointed to deal with the world, to accomplish his purposes in the world, to get rid of all that's gone wrong in the world, to forgive people of their sins, to cast out all evil in the world, to bring heaven's will, God's desires, to earth as it is in heaven. This is Jesus' identity. This is his public inauguration ceremony, much in the same way that we have inauguration ceremonies for our leaders and public figures. So when the president is inaugurated, there's this big, dramatic inauguration ceremony where from here on out, everybody knows who the king is, knows 
who this man is, what his job is, what his mission is to do in the world. Jesus' baptism here functions as this inauguration ceremony. We know that a common Jewish um, royal inauguration ceremony had four parts to it. And you can see all four of these parts here in Jesus' baptism. First, you had um, the king was chosen by the people or by God himself or by a prophet. The king was chosen. Here God chooses Jesus. You are my son. The king is also then, secondly, confirmed by a prophet. Here John the Baptist seemingly would be playing that function, confirming Jesus as he baptizes him. He's the prophet. Thirdly, the king would then be anointed with oil. Oil is a sign in the Old Testament, a symbol for God's presence, for his power, for God's spirit to be with and on and in and through somebody. The king would be anointed with oil as a way of saying that God was with him and God would work through him. You see here, Jesus is anointed. He's anointed with the Holy Spirit, God's power and presence. The spirit descends down like a dove and goes into Jesus. The Greek word here is ice. And so it's probably better translated in or into than on him. The idea is not that a dove perched on Jesus' head, but that the Spirit has come and filled up Jesus so that he can go forth in power. So you have anointing. That's the third part of any Jewish ceremony of inauguration. And then the fourth part is you will have a military victory shortly after the inauguration. And this was the real test, right? This was the real test of whether God was with this king or not. Could they actually defeat the enemy? Could they actually accomplish a victory? We'll see. We're not there yet, but we'll see right after this, Jesus goes into an immediate conflict with Satan, with the ruler of this world, quote unquote. And he has a victory. His kingdom is confirmed. His choice as the king is confirmed in the world. So Jesus' baptism serves here as this kind of public ceremony of his um, being anointed as king, his mission to go out into the world and set up God's kingdom. And then also God says, the voice from heaven says, with you I'm well pleased. He speaks of the satisfaction that he has in Jesus. Notice that God is satisfied with Jesus before he's done anything. This is before Jesus has preached to the crowds. This is before he's raised the dead. This is before he's healed the sick. This is before he's cast out the demons. It seems that Jesus does those things because God loves him, because his father is pleased with them, not in order to earn his father's pleasure or his father's love. Do you see the difference between the two? I think it's an important difference, even when it comes to you and I and our relationship to God. Um, we act out of our being um, we, we act as Christians, as children of God, because we are loved by God, not in order to earn God's love for us. And I think this moment is going to be the driving, kind of defining moment in Jesus' life. It's hard. You never want to psychoanalyze Jesus, okay, or try to kind of get inside his mindset and see what was going on in there. But you have to imagine, you have to, I think, admit, this moment was probably a pivotal moment in his life. Throughout his ministry, he goes through lots of good times and lots of bad times. There are moments when Jesus is preaching to thousands and people are crowding around him and the day has just been great. And he's casting out demons and he's healing people. And you've got to imagine that at the end of that day, he's thinking back to this moment of his baptism when the heaven was torn open and a voice came down saying, You are my son. With you I'm well pleased. You've got to imagine him. Jesus is waking up early to go be in prayer as the Gospels record for us, that he is remembering and thinking back on this moment where God has revealed to him his identity and his mission in the world. You've got to imagine that Jesus, when life gets tough for him, which it does, when he's in the wilderness for these 40 days being tempted, struggling with Satan, 
you've got to imagine that he's holding dearly on to this moment, this moment of revelation, where reality was made clear to him. He is God's son. You've got to imagine that Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he's in doubt, praying that, that there's another way for, for God's will to be accomplished in his death, is remembering back to this moment, this moment where God's relationship to him was fully and, and clearly revealed. This was the defining moment in Jesus' life. I think, though, that, that Jesus' baptism is more than just his defining moment. I think for you and I as Christians, it can actually become our defining moments. Um, so we could, we could get into this by asking this question. It's an interesting question and one that Christians have asked for a very, very long time. Why was Jesus baptized? Why was Jesus baptized? John tells us in the beginning of Mark that baptism is a baptism of repentance. And people came and were baptized and were confessing their sins. And so from very early on, Christians have kind of been embarrassed by the baptismal story of Jesus. Because as Christians, we believe that Jesus had nothing to repent of. He had no need to turn around in his life. To say, I need to stop doing these things and start doing other things. Jesus had no sins to confess. So why here is he baptized? Well, Christians have offered all kinds of different um, answers to this question throughout time. Uh, I think we get a clue in the answer if we compare what Mark says about the people being baptized to what Jesus um, has happened to him when he's baptized. If you look at Mark 1.5, describing the baptism of repentance, Mark says, All the country of Judea and all of Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan. So you have this emphasis on all the people, all the people, the many, a group, a large group of people are going and being baptized for repentance, confessing their sins. And then Jesus comes along. The shift occurs in the narrative from a group of people to one person. And this one person is not confessing sins. It's not seemingly a baptism of repentance. There's this, there's this almost shift where the one takes the place of the many. Where one, Jesus stands in place of all who came before him. All needed to come and repent and be baptized and confess their sins. And Jesus here now comes and without needing to, stands in solidarity with them. Stands with them. Jesus doesn't cash in on, that's another way to say it, his status as one who's without sin. As one who doesn't need to repent. He instead stands alongside and participates in um, humanity and, and, and the sinner's experience. This is a theme we will see throughout the Gospels. Jesus stands in our place. He stands in our place so that Christians believe we can stand in his place. Jesus stands in our place so that we can stand in his place. He experiences humanity fully and completely so that we might experience his life fully and completely. There's uh, Church fathers put forth lots of different reasons why perhaps Jesus was baptized. One, Gregory said that Jesus was baptized in order to cleanse the waters of baptism, in order to make them effective. So baptism washes us of our sins and what um, Gregory says is when Jesus gets in the water, there's a reverse cleaning going on. Where you and I get in the water and it cleanses us, when Jesus gets in the water, he cleanses the water. Much like when Jesus touches a leper. And the leprosy doesn't spread to Jesus, but his cleanliness and his purity spreads to the leper. There's a reverse movement happening. Jesus gets in the water in order that baptism might be effective for you and I, in order that we might receive his life. He's not getting in because he needs life. He's getting in because he is coming close to you and I so that we might receive life. Another church father, Cyril of Alexandria, suggested that 
the reason Jesus gets baptized is because at Genesis 6, when humanity is at its kind of height of wickedness, we're told that the Spirit leaves humanity. God's Spirit departs from humanity. And Cyril suggests that what you see happening when Jesus is baptized is you see the Spirit coming back to humanity. And Jesus receives the Spirit on behalf of humanity that he has become one with. And now the Spirit is able to be received into our lives as well. I would suggest perhaps another answer we could put forward to the question of why is Jesus baptized is this. Jesus is baptized, and we're given this scene here, this proclamation, the anointing of the dove, in order that you and I might know our identity when we're united with Christ. Jesus is baptized. We're given a glimpse into God's feelings toward Jesus so that... When you and I are, through baptism and belief, united with Christ, we know what God thinks and says and feels about us. There's this deep truth for Christians that those who are baptized and believe in Christ, what's true about Jesus is true about us. We've been united with him. We've been incorporated into his body. His status, his sonship, his childhood of God, his benefits and accomplishments in Life get transferred to us. We participate in them. This imagery of a dove coming down on Jesus is an interesting one. The spirit as a dove. A dove is not a, a warrior type bird. Okay, an eagle perhaps. Um, a dove though is, is a gentle, peaceful creature. A dove is also a very sacrificial creature. Doves are commonly sacrificed by the Jewish people. Um, they're used as a sin sacrifice, a sin offering at times. It seems as though you have this imagery here of Jesus being a sacrifice, even at the beginning here at his baptism. You'll also notice that in Mark, there are only two times where God tears something. Um, Again, a very unique word, this word for God tearing open the heavens. And only two times in Mark does God tear something. Once at the beginning of the gospel, when the heavens are torn open. And once at the end of the gospel, when something else is torn open. If you would, flip with me to Mark chapter 15. We saw last week as well that Mark bookends or frames his book. Often things that are found in the first chapter are found repeated or confirmed or further clarified at the very end of his gospel. In Mark 15, verse 33 through 39, we'll see um, a lot of these themes recur and we'll also see the second tearing. When the sixth hour had come and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour... At the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come down to take him. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. Again, a tearing and a proclamation. The curtain of the temple is torn in two, is ripped apart. Um, Some estimates the curtain would have been up to 75 feet tall, a very thick curtain. At Jesus' death, the curtain that separated out people from God's presence in the temple is torn in half. Heaven again is made accessible to humanity. Again, though, how is this victory accomplished? It's through his death. It's through his taking our place, receiving our punishment, receiving the, the, the reward for our crimes. Jesus stands in our place that we might stand in his place. And the centurion recognizes in this man who has died, 
he is truly the son of God. He is truly the one who has come to accomplish God's purposes. Again, for you and I as believing Christians, what's true, Jesus is true of us. When God looks at us, the scriptures say, he sees us as his children. He sees us as his sons and his daughters. There's a sense in which we might perhaps be able to substitute ourselves into Jesus' story of baptism, where Jesus, uh, God the Father, looks at us because of his son and says, you are my beloved daughter. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. A sense where we find our identity from his proclamation of our life through our union with Christ and not through our trying to earn God's favor, trying to earn God's love for us. If you flip with me to Romans chapter 8, you see Paul riffing on this theme here where, where you and I have been adopted as sons and daughters just as Christ is God's true son by nature. So we are sons and daughters by gift, by grace, by adoption. He says in verse 14, Romans eight fourteen, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God, are sons and daughters of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons and daughters, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. This is pretty audacious language. We are children of God. We are co-heirs with Christ. You and I, those who have been baptized, those who believe in Christ, have been united with Christ, share in his identity. Not by nature, we're not sons and daughters by nature, but we're sons and daughters by grace, by adoption. We've been brought in through the work of Christ. This is, I think, one of the things our baptism is supposed to represent to us. When we're baptized, when we go into the water and come out of the water, it's supposed to be this apocalyptic, revelatory moment for us, just as it was for Jesus where we recognize in the, the most clearest, truest form of reality who we really are. This is my daughter, with whom I am well pleased. This is my son, with whom I am well pleased. This is an identity that we need to live into. This is an identity that we need to let motivate us and drive us as we make decisions in and out throughout the week. I think you could substitute, perhaps as an exercise, your name in here. Um, as, as God speaks to Jesus as baptism, if, if we said instead, Burgundy is my beloved daughter with whom I am well pleased. Or we said, Beth is my beloved daughter with whom I am well pleased. Or Trevor is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. If we reflected on what it might mean for that to be said to us, for that to be true of us, for our identities to be found completely in that, for that to be our defining moment. There are a lot of things in our lives that compete to identify us and compete to um, tell us who we are and, and why we're here. And as Christians, part of our job is to, to kind of try to focus in on the truth that's been revealed in Christ. Who are we in Christ? Who are we connected to the Son of God? And who are we because of what he's done on our behalf? Just like Jesus, I think, tapped into this identity both in good times and bad times. So it's important, I think, for you and I to be able to tap into this in good times and in bad times be times in our lives where things are going well and we'll need to remember and be grateful that we are sons and daughters. There'll be times in our lives when things are not going so well and we'll need to remember and be grateful that we are sons and daughters. We're often told as Christians to believe in Jesus and I think we, we should believe in Jesus but I think there's also some truth to this the sense that we also should believe like Jesus. 
We should believe like Jesus. Jesus believed the Father when he told him this. You are my son with whom I'm well pleased. He lived his life out of this identity. There's a sense as in, in, in which Jesus is the true example of what it means to be a human being, to be a child of God. And you and I need to believe like Jesus believed in the good times and in the bad times, that we are his children. We are his sons and his daughters. And he is pleased with us. Our baptism reminds us of this. Hopefully our time and fellowship together reminds us. Hopefully um, our disciplines in life, prayer and fasting and, and scripture reading reminds us of this identity. Um, baptism, we only get to experience once. We go in the water and we come out of the water. And hopefully it is this special time of our identity being revealed to us and the world around us. Hopefully it is this time that we can think back on and hold on tightly to in good times and in bad times. Um, baptism, though, while only being able to be experienced once, um, is different from communion, which we can experience every week as we come to the table and as we worship together um, in that way. Um, we practice communion every week here at First Colony Christian Church, and, and I want to suggest this morning that maybe perhaps the table is another moment of clarity, another moment where we see reality for what it truly is, just like Jesus' baptism, just like our baptisms. At the table, we confess who Jesus is, his identity, his work on our behalf, the sacrifice given for us. And we also remember and are reminded of our identity, of who we are as we participate in and with Christ. Because very literally, we take his body and blood into us as we're reminded that we are one with him and that when God looks at us, he sees his son. So this morning, I'd ask you as we finish up our time in the text and as we approach the table to come to the table with two questions. The first being, who is Jesus? What is his identity? Has it been revealed to you that he is the son of God? That he is the one who has come to make all things new and to make all things right? And the second question, come to the table asking the question, who are you? What is your identity? Are you one who is connected with Christ? One who's a son and daughter with him? A part of the body of the, the church? One who's called to God into the world and, and be a light in the darkness around us? Would you come to the table with these questions this morning? Please pray with me. Father, we love you. We thank you for your grace in our lives.